EMS One Academy, a training solution designed for EMS chiefs, offers more than 200 courses and 250 hours of continuing education. Our modern learning solution includes flexible reporting capabilities and features to upload agency-specific courses and track credentials for recertification. Easily streamline daily administrative workflow with EMS One Academy. Start your free trial. Visit www.emsoneacademy.com slash insideems. Well, once again, it's time to go inside EMS. I want to thank everybody for joining us on the show, but I couldn't do it. I really couldn't do it without my partner, without my good friend, KG Kelly Grayson. KG, what's going on? Oh man, I'm just uh, I've been enjoying your your serenade here. Uh, that, that's been pretty good. Before we started recording, guys, uh, uh, Chris was serenading me with Rush's greatest hits. So, I don't know uh, that I was doing that. I don't know that I was serenading him. I just happened <laughs> to sing a couple of lines. Uh, so, but uh, that's you never know who's listening, I guess, right? So we were talking about that's Rush, it. and you were saying I think your comment is kind of interesting, where you said people who don't uh, like Rush, what about them? They they have no soul. <laughs> <laughs> they have no soul. I mean, yeah. How can you not like Rush? Uh, that that's if you like rock at all, you know. Uh, I mean, your taste. Everybody's taste may vary, but I think we can all come together uh, in agreeing that that Rush is an awesome band. But let me ask you this question. It, you know, so we think about Rush. I think Rush is a good band. I don't know an awesome band. I think they're a good band. But who's the best drummer ever? I don't know, man. Because mine, I know your your. Go ahead and tell me yours, because mine tends to 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 lean toward more towards southern rock guys. And southern and, rock is that a real thing? So yeah, I think that there's I think that there's a couple that I would put up there. I think Ginger Baker from the group Cream was was a good was awesome. I think Neil Peart certainly from Rush is incredible. I think Alex Van Halen had a way to bang on those things. I think he is pretty mm-hmm. awesome. I think we've got to go back to the guy who changed how drumming was done in rock and roll, and that was Peter Chris uh, from Kiss. I mean, he's the first one to put a, a 47 uh, drum kit together on stage. So I think when we think about who the best is, I think that, that you know we really have to kind of think about the pioneers and who they were. But I would kind of put those people towards the top, man. Who, who are you going to give me? Since we're talking about it, I, 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 I can't, I can't, I, I can't argue with either one of those, man. Because your, your, first of all, your rock geek penis is longer than mine. I, uh, I really am not as well versed in in uh, rock drummers as you are. But I can't, I can't really uh, um, quibble with any of those choices. All right, good. All I'm right, more well, of a guitarist kind of guy. All right, well, who would you say is the best guitarist then? Oh my God! Well, pure virtuoso, uh, uh, Hendrix, uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan, um, there, and God, all the all the the rock guitarists of the the last thirty forty years. Yeah. Um, Eric Clapton. Uh, Eric Clapton. Eric Clapton. Eddie Van Halen. Eddie Van Halen. Yeah. yeah, I would think probably, and and this is might be an unusual choice, but I would think Prince is probably one of the best guitar players. Uh, out there, yeah, I mean, some of the stuff man. we don't normally think of Prince as, as right. a guitarist or but rock and roll, all rock and roll. Had, to be yeah, honest with but you, he but. had some serious, serious guitar chops. He could, he could really play. 
So, well, we want to hear your thoughts too, man. So if you think about the best drummers, who are they? If you think about the best guitarists, what's your vote? Uh, you could either send us an email at the show or go ahead and let's put it on, uh, EMS one. Maybe we talk about that discussion on the Facebook page. EMS playlist. So, but anyway, we're getting yeah. off topic. But this yeah. is a good topic. But I think uh, maybe we get some people together one day. We talk about music. We think of what our peers in EMS think about the best uh, guitarist, drummer, uh, maybe uh, even singers, groups, whatever. It'd be, mm-hmm. be interesting to know some of our peers because we talk about these things when we're at the mm-hmm. you know when we're at the conferences. Kelly, oh, yeah. we're sitting around, we're having an adult beverage, and you know we start to talk about uh, the best of things and. Maybe yeah, we do that one. Or show. listen to it in the truck. There is nothing more tedious than sharing a, an ambulance with somebody whose musical tastes are antithetical to your own. <laughs> you know, and I got to tell you, man, I you're will, jamming out to rock, and somebody's going on. Ain't you got no Tammy Wynette on there? Yeah, I got to tell you, man, I can listen to just about anything except country music. I like in my country cu- music when it's country music. This this modern. Uh, dirt road beer drinking uh girls kind of pop country uh bro country sucks yeah my my stepdaughters loved country music and i banned it in the house if i heard it it was too loud and i didn't want to hear it i broke all the knobs off the radio stations that would put country music in my car in my house so i just i just don't get it there was the other i was down in orlando i did the keynote mm-hmm. address for Paige wolfberg and worth and I got picked up in an Uber, and of course, uh, the Uber wasn't the best of English speaking, let's say, but they were listening to salsa music, and I never really kind of uh, listened to it before, but I got to tell you, I enjoyed it, but I'd rather listen to that mm-hmm. than anything that had to do with country music. Yeah, well, to each his own. Yeah, to each his own. But we, we, have got, we have delved off, uh, well off our intended topic today. I wanted to talk about... Uh, something that came up in uh, the April 24th uh, news in, in EMS-1, uh, and it's uh, about a lecture uh, that Jeff Jarvis, uh, medical director for Williamson County EMS, is going to do at EMS Pro Expo uh, next month in, in uh, Connecticut. And it's, uh, it's, about why, uh, it's about delayed sequence intubation. Um, he's talking about delayed sequence intubation, uh, a cure for RSD rapidly sequenced death and in it he talks about why ems agencies should change their definition of a successful intubation uh, and this is a, a topic that's near and dear to my heart because i think the way we've we've uh, classified an intubation attempt and success rate uh is wrong and and how we we beat our chest about uh how we intubate in a ditch at 3 a.m by flashlight uh, as an ex- uh, and use that as an excuse for how how bad we suck at overall airway management. Um, I was wanting to kind of get your thoughts on the matter, man. What what do you consider, first of all, an intubation attempt? When you were at Christian Hospital EMS, what did you call an attempt for your guys? Yeah, and I think that, you know, this is really, it is an interesting topic. And airway management is one of those things that, I think as a leader, we've got to be able to ensure that our people are doing the very best job that they can when it comes to management. And of course, um, my definition of an attempt and anywhere that I go, I try to bring it with me is I want to look, I want to see what's going on in there. So as I pass the laryngoscope, I know where the anatomy is and I want to make sure that I can have a successful intubation. And usually if I get in there and look to see and I can make the cords out, 
I'm going to try an attempt. And to me, the definition of attempt is as soon as the cuff passes the teeth. Uh, If I'm going to take a look, if I'm going to check the landmarks, if I'm going to move forward, but as soon as I put the tube in my hand and the cuff passes the teeth, that's an attempt. And I will tell you this, when I was at Christian Hospital, I only gave people one attempt. So this wasn't about ego. These guys and girls needed to be the most professional that they could be, and it wasn't about their ego of not being able to intubate. We know the landmarks. We know the anatomy. So as you now pass the tube, if you can't get the tube, pull it out, do your ventilation again if you need to, and let's put in a rescue airway and let's move on. I think the days, Kelly, and as we talk about this, it's going to be very, very important to to kind of go through this topic, but I just want to say I think the days of intubation are over. Uh, hang on one second i'll I'll give you i'll give you your turn i'll give you your turn but i would think now in the days of rescue airway the eye gels and so on and so Mm -hmm. forth if we can train our first responder agencies to use this airway there's no reason why we shouldn't get on scene and have a rescue airway already in place but i'll I'll give you the opportunity to uh, opine on that thought you know i i i kind of disagree that the that um the days of intubation are over but they may well wind up that way and i think that'd be a tragedy for our profession um because we are less interested in improving our success rates at endotracheal intubation than we are uh at bragging about it um i agree with you totally that an intubation attempt should be attempting to pass a tube uh past the teeth uh, all too many EMS agencies consider an, int- an intubation attempt as uh, inserting a laryngoscope in the mouth. And like you said, I think sometimes we, we need to uh, practice a little circum- uh, circumspection when it comes to airway management, get a lay of the land, you know, and, and, and assess the patient and, and decide whether this patient can be well served by passing a tube or can they be managed with BLS means. Because that's a big bright line in the sand across uh, intubating someone so one of the things that you said was that you know you think that if intubation is over it's going to be a bad day for our field i really want to kind of talk about that because i don't know that intubation is the end-all beat-all when it comes to airway management so when you say you think it's a bad thing for our career field i want to discuss that with you so first give me your opinion and i like to kind of come back on it well i don't think intubation is the end-all be-all of, of airway management. So how could it be a detriment to our career field if we get rid of it? Because anytime we have a potentially useful tool taken out of our toolbox, uh, that diminishes our capacity to properly care for our patients. There are going to be instances, uh, where a definitive airway is more recommended than a superglottic airway. Let's take anaphylaxis, airway burns, rapidly deteriorating, deteriorating airway, uh, issues, uh, as an example, you know, if, if you got someone, for example, with inhalation burns and they're hoarse and striderous, and all the, the clinical signs that shows this patient has a rapidly deteriorating airway, you're not going to manage that with a superglottic airway. It's yeah. just not going to happen. Right. They need a chunk of plastic between their vocal cords as close to, uh, 15 minutes ago as possible. That's going to require an endotracheal tube. Uh, and if we delay, we're going to be uh, using an even more risky procedure, surgical cricothyrotomy. Right. Um, but so that's going to require that we be proficient with 
the tools at our disposal. And that's one of the problems is in recent years, we have not been proficient with endotracheal intubation. Uh, you know, our standards were so low for so long that, you know, it, for, for years, people were graduating from COAMPS accredited programs with just uh, five successful intubations. You know, we had guys with paramedic patches on their shoulders that had never intubated a live human being. Um, and, and that kind of thing needs to stop. But uh, recognizing problems only uh, only part of it, um, we have to have some, some steps uh, to improve our success rate. And one of the things that Jarvis talks about in his, his uh, in this article, and he'll be doing in his, in his lecture, is rather than use rapid sequence induction, uh, as your your airway method uh, uh, for uh, securing a difficult airway um, or a compromised airway, use delayed sequence intubation. And the primary difference is the is the the time lag between administering the sedative and the neuromuscular blocking agent. Um, and and uh, in his system, they make really good use of that time lag. They make sure that for three minutes the patient is adequately preoxygenated. And we have all these tools now. We have CPAP. We have PEEP valves that we can put on our AMBU bags. We can practice apneic oxygenation techniques. Uh, and all of these things that can get our patients well oxygenated and establish a buffer before we try to pass that tube uh, past the lips. And uh, there's no sense in, in us not using uh, all those uh, all those tools at our disposal. I think one of the reasons that, aside from just the lack of initial training, uh, that paramedics uh, suck so bad in endotracheal intubation is we hurry and we rush the procedure, and, and it's driven more by adrenaline than logic. Uh, and if we just slowed down, adequately pre-oxygenated our patients, formed a plan, and approached it methodically, our intubation success rates would go way, way up. Uh, you know, it, it's a different feeling entirely thinking, well, I've got to get this tube in 30 seconds or, or, or I'm a, an abject failure in paramedicine uh, and thinking, well, hey, we got this guy oxygenated well. If things don't go the way we plan, we still have him oxygenated well. He's not hypoxic. We can continue with what we're doing and bag the patient if necessary. And the overall goal is to prevent hypoxia. If we can't get the tube, well, we're still accomplishing the overall goal. Uh, it takes a whole lot of the pressure off, don't you think? You know, I think you bring up a lot of good points. And certainly when we think about how we go about our airway management, it does come down to a skill that we need to uh, be proficient in and one that we don't get a lot of practice in. I think, you know, even with the advanced skill, I don't think we get a lot of practice in our BLS skills when it comes to airway management. But I No, think we you, do not. I think you bring up a couple good points, and, and one that I'll give you is the sense that in patients that could have, uh, you know, singed airway, that that's where intubation is going to help. And the reason that I say that I think that intubation is dead in our career field is because, again, if we can train all our first responders to place an eye gel before we arrive on scene, why are we intubating? Uh -huh. There's going to be no reason for us to intubate. And, you know, I think in EMS, if we think about, if we think about the percentage of calls to where we have a singed airway, how many calls do you think we're running in EMS uh, in a year that, that have that? Uh, well, that probably, probably relatively few, but that's only one, you know, that's only one example. They're, they're, everyone can tell you about a time when an eye gel didn't seal correctly or when a King's uh, King airway placement didn't seem to, to allow 
adequate ventilation of the patient. These things work most of the time, but no tool is foolproof. Uh, and for that matter, neither is endotracheal intubation. Um, but it's one of those things. My philosophy on it is the more tools you have in the toolbox, uh, the less you are, uh, less likely you are to, you know, pound a screw in with a hammer. Uh, you don't, you're not supposed to, only, you're not supposed to do that. If the only tool you have in your toolbox is a hammer, every problem gets treated like a nail. Right. Um, and, and I, you know, I would like that, uh, or I would prefer that EMS be, uh, proficient in several tools, uh, and have options available. And that's that's simply where it goes. I think we need to. The, the biggest battle is is checking our ego, as you pointed out in the past, um, and rethinking our approach to it. Uh, it needs to be an overall management approach, and endotracheal intubation needs to be part of the skill set. But it doesn't need to be the be all end all. Uh, okay. I want to give a shout out to myself before I kick it back to you. Um, uh, Gene Gandy, Jason Kodat, and I uh, wrote an article in the August 2015 issue of EMS World Magazine uh, called Taking the Fear Out of RSI and DSI. And, and we talked uh, about some, some techniques you can use to increase your chances of success at intubation. And one of the things we talked about was using DSI as an uh, airway management technique combined with um, pit crew CPR approach. Uh, have a pit crew approach to airway management. Uh, and, and I think that would work very well in most systems. You know, I think there's nothing like patting yourself on the back. So I want to go ahead and just jump on well, board. I, and, and I'm, I'm talking with the surgeon to get me longer arms to, to do just okay. that. Okay, uh, good, I can good. only reach one shoulder, but I'd like to be able to reach both of them. Good to hear. Good to hear. But I think <laughs> that one of the things for, even from a leadership standpoint, I know this is not where the discussion we wanted to have, uh, we're on that path, but I think you bring up a good point. You know, when we think about our vision statement, I want to just kind of really kind of talk about strategy and, you know, clinical excellence. We talk mm -hmm. about our vision statement, and one of the things that we would talk about is, you know, being clinically excellent. We were, in my systems, I would put in place, I would look to see what the system average of intubation would be. You know, so let's say the system average is 92%. And then I would gauge individual providers against the system average. So if your intubation uh -huh. success rate wasn't 92% or above, you automatically went into remediation. And that remediation could be, uh, you know, a discussion about airway management. It could be a discussion about uh, uh, tube placement. It could be a discussion about, you know, skill. But whatever it was, it wasn't necessarily for the sense of punishment it was really for the sense of increasing somebody's core knowledge. Now, I will tell you that do we get 100% of the intubations that we get? No. But if somebody keeps a, a, you know, a percentage rate below the system average, I wanted to be able to show that we were working with those people to ensure that their skills yeah. were a little bit higher. So now when we think about basic airway management, when we think about advanced airway management, what are we doing as a system to make sure that our providers have the best yeah. knowledge that they can to be successful? But I think that going back to your point where we talk about how we're managing a patient's airway, how we're doing that intubation, what do we include as an attempt? I don't know that we're doing enough as an organization or as a career field to uh, make sure that our providers have the very best knowledge, skills, and experience that they have to be successful in handling these uh, patients. Well, you mentioned something there um, that that 
struck a chord. And it's it seems that the, the systems that do the best airway management are always the systems that have strong CQI and actively engage medical direction. In other words, well-run systems. So you, you, things like things like that, leadership, good leadership uh, from the top down, that's one of those instances where it pays clinical dividends at your agency as well. It takes an actively engaged medical director, one who's willing to teach, uh, and, and a, uh, uh, a manager and a leader who is interested in measuring uh, those things and, and, and uses data and analytics to improve performance at his agency. Circa 1999, Louisiana added uh, RSI to the paramedic scope of practice based on a proposal I wrote to the EMS Certification Commission from a call that uh, ran July 4th, 1997, when I almost had to surgically uh, crack someone uh, that really uh, probably would have died had I not gotten lucky at getting a nasal airway. Um, but one of the interesting things that, that came about in, in writing that proposal was uh, it hammered home to me the importance of data and, and analytics. And researching our intubation success rate agency-wide, uh, we were only in the mid-80s as far as uh, success rate in intubation. I thought, man, we, we got to be better than that. And as it turns out, uh, two of our medics had a less than 50% uh, success rate at intubation. We were, I was clueless of that. They missed more than half of the tubes they attempted. Um, and if you don't measure something, you can't improve it. And we went forearmed into that. Uh, proposal, knowing that we had a couple medics who were well below par. We had a training program in place uh, for how to get them up to speed. Uh, and we got a contract, clinical contract with a with the local hospital uh, and, and got those guys some live intubation times and improved their intubation success rates. And I think that's going to be the key in improving our quality of airway management is is knowing those numbers uh, and have an active plan uh, in place to improve them somehow. But hey, that's what we think. We'd like to hear what you think. Do you think we intubate well in EMS? How well does your agency do it? And what are they doing right that we can emulate? Email us at the show at ems1.com. Don't forget to rate us on iTunes. And for myself and co-host Chris Civilero, thanks for tuning in to Inside EMS. We'll catch you guys next week.